You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Air Force Chief of Staff General Charles Q. Brown Jr. joins the Post to discuss what it means to be the first Black chief of a U.S. military service and how artificial intelligence will reshape air combat. Let's listen. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for the Post. Today on The Path Forward, it's a special pleasure to welcome General Charles Q. Brown, Jr., the new Air Force Chief of Staff, and the first African-American who has served as chief of one of our military services. And as you heard in that clip, a brief excerpt from comments he made last August, a person who has spoken out with unusual clarity and conviction about issues of race, the divisions in our country, and also the need for change in our military services. So, General Brown, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, David. It's, uh, it's my pleasure to be with you today. So I want to start by asking you about the uh, storming of the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, an event that's seared into the consciousness of the, of the nation. And I want to ask, ask you to begin by telling us what you thought as you looked at those images your, yourself on that very frightening afternoon. Well, David, you know, it, it was a day, that I, I was actually teleworking that day, and, and so uh, I was actually uh, working, but very much parked in front of the TV. And uh, there's a couple of things. One, it, 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 I was uh, shocked. Um, I was kind of hard to believe it was all happening. Um, and then by the same token, I was very, very disappointed, and it hurt. Um, one, one of my best friends that sent me a text while all this was going on, and uh, we, we exchanged a, a text and, and we talked about how much this hurt and how unbelievable it was to see this happen in our nation. So, um, you know, I, I think like many Americans, uh, I struggled on that day to understand kind of what was going on and, and where we were gonna go as a nation. Some of the uh, people who stormed the Capitol were carrying Confederate flags and other insignia that had explicit uh, racist white supremacist uh, uh, markings. I want to ask you what, what your, your feelings were as you saw those symbols of another terrible time in our history. Well, it's, uh, well, I'll just tell you the Confederate flag throughout my career has been one of those things where um, it, it's never really set well with me. Um, just watching, uh, you know, around our force or other locations and having uh, been stationed uh, in locations in the South where you, where you saw it prominently. Uh, but to see it up on the, uh, on the Capitol, and to be walked through the Capitol um, gives me an indication that uh, you know we, where we are as a nation and where um, there is a bit of division and uh, how we need to come together and uh, get past our differences because that's what's made us great as a nation. Uh, but I, I just tell you, it was one of those where you, when you saw that, um, you actually gives you a sense of how some people really feel uh, as well. And uh, the fact that we need to work together better um, to be the nation we've all grown to know and love uh, and how we come together and work together a bit better and work past our differences uh, for, for uh, uh, no matter who you are. One more question, General Brown, about, about January 6th. In the aftermath, there were some commentators, some prominent uh, political leaders, who said that they thought that the reaction uh, by the Capitol Police and, and by uh, police, law enforcement, the National Guard, was conditioned in fact in part by the fact that the protesters were mostly white, that if this had been a Black Lives Matter protest uh, as last summer, you would have seen a, a much harsher response. 
Do you think that issue of, of racial disparity in treatment is a factor here? I think it's something that needs to be considered, but I also think it's a pendulum. You, you, you take a look at the, uh, and I was not in Washington, D.C. Um, in the summer when uh, the, the protests happened here in, in, in D.C., um, but there was a pendulum swing of the reaction then, and I think uh, in this case, the pendulum swung a different direction and uh, probably was not, uh, you know, the, the amount of uh, capability or, or the underestimation of um, the passion of those that came to the Capitol that day. Um, and so there is maybe, you know, and, you have, and I have seen that in the press, and it does make you wonder um, uh, how we reacted uh, as a nation um, to these particular events on the 6th and, and how I, I think in some cases we underestimated the reaction uh, from, from those that participated on the 6th. There was a very strong reaction from Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Milley, you and the other chiefs in a message to the troops that you released on January 12th, uh, almost a week after these events. And it was a pretty stern warning to the troops that not only were these actions a violation of the Constitution, of our values as Americans, but they were legal. And I read that as a, as a warning and an expression of concern by the chiefs about extremism within the military and among among veterans. It's now clear the count I had in the newspaper was at, at least 30 of the people who were involved in the, those militant protests were either serving uh, National Guard, active duty, or veterans. Just talk for a minute about your concern about the spread of these extremist ideas within the military community. Well, David, the first thing, I, you know, I go back to the signing of the memo uh, by the uh, Joint Chiefs and, and the aspect of uh, the facts associated with all of us that rose our right hand to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. And uh, you may have differences of opinions uh, amongst, uh, you know, from a political standpoint, but we still have a job to do uh, to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. And so for, for me, that was a, um, you know, I felt pretty strongly about that. I think all the, uh, I, you know, I can't speak for all the Joint Chiefs, but just based on the, the mood when we sat down to, to do this, uh, I, I felt we were all in, in the same place. It also, you know, I also think about the aspect of, um, we can talk about extremism, but one of the things I've talked about as I've come to this job is I want to create an environment where all of our immigrants can reach their full potential. And extremism is not one of those that uh, allows that to happen, whether it be sexual assault, discrimination. There's, there's so many factors that can actually detract from our airmen and our service members reaching their full potential. And extremism is one of those, and that's actually come to four um, uh, based on the events of the six. Um, I also look at racial disparity that came to four over the course of the summer. And uh, sexual assault is something that uh, we're still, we are dealing with, and we, we have to do better in those areas to create that right environment. It requires leadership, leadership from my level, but from all levels across the force. So let me ask you the, the, the tough question, which is, how do you go after this extremist sentiment that's out there in the military, it's out there in American life, uh, without violating people's First Amendment rights and without making the problem worse, without driving people into even more extreme, secretive uh, behavior? I'm sure you've thought carefully about how to do that within the Air Force. What, what, are, what are your thoughts? How, how do you go after it without driving, driving it underground? Well, you know, part of this is actually setting a, we lay out what our standards are and what our expectations are for, for those to be part of our force. And um, we, we hold ourselves to a higher standard. 
Um, and uh, just like you know, a number of Americans, depending on whatever career field, you have certain standards you, you live up to. And, and that's the aspect that we have to talk about our core values and our standards. But we need to be open and transparent about how we talk about those. And, and I think that, uh, that's actually something I've seen over the course of the summer um, based on race. I think the same thing has to apply where you have a, a, a different view um, and to get some of those, uh, maybe those views on, on the table. Uh, the one other thing I, I would share with you, David, is, is that um, for many of our, our airmen, you know, our service members, when, when they come into the military, they, this must may be the most diverse organization or uh, experience they've ever had. And, and to think about those that uh, grew up uh, in the inner city or grew up on a, on a farm someplace where um, you don't cross paths with uh, different, you know, uh, race, gender, ethnic background. And, and so that becomes a challenge. And, and how do we then um, bring um, our service members in and assimilate them into something that's bigger than themselves and to get past maybe some of the things they grew up with. And that, that's, you know, that doesn't happen overnight, but it's gonna take time and effort and, and leadership to, to make all that, uh, all that come together. We had a, a, a historic event uh, with the confirmation of General Lloyd Austin as Secretary of Defense by the Senate first uh, African-American to serve as Secretary of, of Defense. I'm sure you've known him. Uh, give our viewers a sense of, of what you expect to see from him as Secretary of, of Defense and, and also about your conversations with him. Well, I have served with him. Um, and uh, when I was at United States Central Command as, uh, as one of the air component, as the air component commander. And, uh, you know, I, I've always been impressed with his leadership. And, and um, he's, he's pretty straightforward. He's very thoughtful. Um, and uh, from that aspect, and, and he's inclusive. And, and from, from all those, uh, that's what I expect to see from him as the, uh, as the Secretary of Defense. And uh, naturally he has vast experience within the Department of Defense, um, but it's also the experience in uh, the work he's done over the years, but also the relationships he's built as well. And uh, whether it's with me, but other members of the department, but also those in the, uh, in, uh, on the civilian side, that uh, I, I think he'll, he'll be pretty straightforward as far as how we move out, he's pretty direct on uh, what he expects. And uh, I think he's gonna hold us to account as well to ensure that we deliver on the things that uh, his priorities, the, the president's priorities to uh, do the things that the Department of Defense does to, to you know, secure our national security, uh, but, but also how we work with our allies and partners and, and also have the right environment within the force. Let me turn to something that's more personal, which uh, our viewers had a chance to see in the introduction to this program, and that's the remarkable uh, video statement that you made uh, last August when the country was still struggling with the aftermath of George Floyd's death, the Black Lives Matters pro protests, the uh, passion uh, for racial justice around the country, and, and the difficulty in the in the streets you you made that uh, unusual video video what what I'm thinking about and I want to ask you what led you to do that um, and uh, what effect you think that had both on the Air Force and on our discussion nationally about race well David it was um, you know I really debated this is you know, actually the video was done in June and I was in the uh, I'd already testified for my confirmation, but I was waiting for confirmation to be the next chief of staff of the Air Force. And uh, at the same time, I did not want to uh, step on the toes of General Goldfein, my predecessor. Um, and uh, but at the same time, uh, I had airmen that uh, were warning what I was thinking about. Uh, and a matter of fact, 
Um, it was a Facebook post that I saw that, uh, you know, my staff, someone had actually come back and said, hey, he's waiting for confirmation. He's probably going to be quiet about it. And I was. And so I debated about it. But uh, I, we had a conversation with uh, one of our sons. And uh, our youngest son was a freshman at Washington University in St. Louis uh, when uh, the events at Ferguson happened in Ferguson, Missouri. And so he lives here in Washington, D.C. And he had called us and I was, you know, living in Hawaii. And uh, he was really struggling with with the events. And and so he um, he asked me, um, Dad, what is PACAF going to say? You know, Pacific Air Force is going to say. And, and really what he's asking me was, Dad, what are you going to say? And uh, and so I was kind of on the fence because I really wanted to say something, but I was also kind of waiting for confirmation. So confirmation I was told was going to happen on Tuesday. It didn't happen on that Tuesday. And finally I said, OK, uh, I'm just going to do it. And, uh, and so uh, I decided to do the, the video. Um, and partly it was just, it was really more directed to the airmen in Pacific Air Forces. Uh, I had no intention for it to go as, uh, as broadly as it did, uh, but in hindsight, I'm glad it did. Um, because um, it's many of the things that I've dealt with, what our sons have dealt with, and many others that look like me have dealt with, not just African-Americans, but you can talk about any diverse group within our country that has dealt with a level of either discrimination or disparity um, and, um, you know, from from that aspect, uh, you know, I've I've never been afraid to speak up, and uh, as I far exceed any place I ever planned to be, uh, but I always wanted to say what's on my heart, and and that's what I did. I'd urge our our viewers to go and take a look at this uh, remarkable statement if you haven't seen it by, by General Brown. What I'm thinking about it's it's on Facebook. I'm just going to quote a brief passage. You, you said you were full of emotion, not just for George Floyd, but for the many African-Americans who suffered the same fate as George Floyd. You talked about the difficulty you'd experienced uh, living in two worlds uh, as an African-American and as, a, as an Air Force fighter pilot. Remarkable statement. So I want to ask you the, the question uh, in a way that your son asked you back, back then, uh, which is uh, now that you're Air Force Chief of Staff, what are you thinking about? What's what's on your mind now when you think about issues of racial justice? Well, you know, David, I, I think the the one thing that, that out of the, the course of the summer, the events over the summer, um, this has actually opened up the conversation of a conversation that, uh, you know, was on a lot of minds of particularly African-Americans um, who were able to talk more openly. And uh, from that aspect, I think that's good. By the same token, it, you know, our airmen got a voice. Our airmen um, got the chance to speak up of what, what they were feeling. At the same time, it opened up the aperture for those who are, don't walk in our shoes um, and, and cross the different levels of leadership to actually um, open, their, open their eyes a bit more. Um, and uh, actually, I had, you know, some of my mentors that uh, who had mentored me had no idea, after seeing the video, had really no idea the things that I was that were on my mind or things I was dealing with. And so from that aspect, that actually has opened up a little more frank conversation about uh, race and, and diversity within the force. And so I really see it as an opportunity. And uh, the thing I am really focused on and thinking about is to ensure that we do something um, that is meaningful, that's sustainable, uh, and then endures well after me. And um, those are the things I wanna make sure we put in, into our force that is not, it doesn't become personality dependent, leadership uh, dependent, but it's something that, that becomes part of uh, the culture of our force 
uh, or the Air Force going forward. And, and so those are the things I'm thinking about. And we are making some good, decent progress there, but there is a lot of work to be done in this area um, to continue to, to make us a, uh, you know, create that right environment that I, I spoke of earlier. I'll ask you about two specific areas of, of uh, racial disparity before we uh, talk about some other issues uh, facing the, the Air Force. But for, for you and, and Secretary uh, Austin and for, for all the chiefs, uh, the, the numbers are, are disturbing. I just was looking at a compilation that was prepared uh, uh, over the weekend by PBS that said, Black service members are 16% of the military force, but only 8% of the officers. White, white service members are 55% of the military, but 72% of the officers. Those numbers are so striking. So when you think about changing them, how are you, how are you gonna do that in a way that um, is reflected through the military, um, through the Air Force, as you, as you look at promotion panels? Uh, what's the way to, to, to deal with that problem uh, in, a, in a way that, that strengthens st strengthens the Air Force and, and the military. Yeah, David, I did see that PBS report, and uh, you know there there is some accuracy. I mean, there is accuracy to that report, and that's just one of the things we found in our review that we did over the course of the summer. The way we 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 address this is uh, is by purposeful management and leadership. And there's a couple of things we've already done inside the Air Force, and that's uh, particularly on the officer side is we broke up our promotion boards to actually do developmental categories. So it wasn't, uh, you know, kind of about a big one size fits off by and large. And that gives us a, better, a little better chance to work some of the talent management aspects. The other things that we have to do is ensure that we have um, diversity on the on the boards, but also diversity on the on the candidate list. And uh, that that's something we, we, we have been doing, but I don't know that we've been doing as purposeful as we, we probably could and as purposeful as we plan to do. And so, you know, the aspect, particularly when you have, you know, build a big foundation. So it's, you know, we're a very hierarchical organization. So you need to have a big foundation coming in at the at the uh, entry level, and then you got to sustain that uh, over time to ensure that you have uh, individuals of diverse backgrounds available as you get to more senior ranks. And, and so that's one thing we're focused on to ensure we understand why people stay, why people leave, uh, but also as we look at um, um, our, our our different lists and different panels of and boards, we actually ensure that we have diverse candidates on the list. And the last thing I would say on that is, is how we encourage and mentor some of those diverse candidates, because sometimes they, they may feel like they're not qualified and not put their name in. And we've got to actually nudge and pull and actually um, purposely manage to ensure that we have diverse candidates that can compete and if uh, if they need some help in certain areas with uh, coaching or additional uh, additional training or additional opportunities, that is something we've got to continue to work on as well. So it's it's really about providing those opportunities and uh, and the mentorship and the nurturing uh, to ensure that all of our our service members have the opportunity to uh, to compete on a, on a level playing field. Final question, General Brown, in, in this area on December twenty third, you. Uh, issued a directive to conduct a comprehensive review of official and unofficial unit emblems, morale patches, mottos, nicknames, coins, uh, all that other uh, sort of des descriptive that the Air Force has to ensure that uh, these were helping produce an inclusive and professional environment. 
What concerns you that led you to issue that directive? Did, did you f find that some of those nicknames, mottos, whatever, uh, had a had a negative and derogatory effect? Well, I've seen, actually, I'll tell you, David, I've seen this kind of, particularly in, in leadership over the course of my uh, career, I'd say probably the back half of the career, where there's things that we've had put in place, whether it's a, um, uh, a patch, uh, coin, a motto that uh, may have been okay or been accepted in the past. Uh, but over time, as you start to open the aperture and start talking about uh, uh, disparity and being more inclusive, um, it, it, you can't emulate different parts of the organization or, or the Air Force um, if we're not conscious of it. And, and this is, goes into uh, kind of the unconscious bias. And so th from that aspect, it was an opportunity for us to take a hard look at some of these areas that, uh, you know, we really haven't, uh, maybe haven't looked at in the past. And really, uh, it may have bothered somebody, but they, they felt like nothing was going to be done about it. Uh, and so in this case, it's an opportunity for us to take a look at it and actually do a hard review for ourselves and then take the appropriate action to um, you know, whether we continue uh, with whatever the patch, the motto, the coin, or is it something that needs to be changed to be more inclusive of, of the force? And, and so that's that's what drove this review. So you have a, a world of challenges now as the Air Force Chief of Staff. Uh, your service in some ways is the most technologically complicated and, and, and advanced. I want to ask you ab about your modernization agenda. You uh, promulgated a new strategy paper in August, uh, as I understand it, that was called Accelerate, Change, or Lose. Uh, and I just want to ask you to, to, to unpack that for us. What does the Air Force need to do to, to, to change more quickly? What does it need to begin to try to break with in, in, in doctrine and in strategy and weapons acquisition? What's, what's your agenda? Well, David, I, I wrote that for a couple of reasons. And, and, and part of that was because I spent uh, my, my time as a general officer not in Washington, D.C. at the Pentagon. And it was in mostly in joint jobs. And because I was in joint jobs, I actually could watch the Air Force from the outside to an extent. And uh, from that aspect, I could actually take a hard look at our service. And I just felt that in some cases that um, we were not moving fast enough to deliver capability out, out to uh, the warfighter in the field. And uh, I just felt there were some bureaucratic processes and then how we do our acquisition and not, in some cases, not being threat mindful as we go forward. And as the threat changes and watching how some of our adversaries change quickly, we are still on the same path and, and don't deviate from. And I felt like if we didn't start changing that approach and start taking advantage of some of the acquisition authorities that we have, um, changing the culture of being able to make decisions and making tough decisions, um, then I felt like we we're going to lose. And, and that's why I laid that out. And so we, we've got to really take a hard look internal to the Air Force to be able to make some of the tough calls. But at the same time, it's how we better collaborate with the uh, those here in the Department of Defense, how we co collaborate with the uh, members on the Hill, and how we collaborate with industry. Because our national security, we're all in this together from a national security standpoint. And, uh, you know, I think that's a, where I felt like we need to actually be a little more open and transparent as an Air Force, talk about what it is we need to do, highlight where the problems are, and be able to think about where we need to be in the future, and then how do we work from where we are today to get to the future and do that collaboratively with those key stakeholders. One uh, challenge uh, for the Air Force, some people would say a headache, to be honest, is the creation of a Space Force. 
um, this was a pet project of, of President Trump's. It's something in the end that the chiefs uh, ended up supporting, but, but there was concern in the Air Force often expressed to, to me. What's your own uh, judgment as, as Air Force Chief, Chief of Staff? Do you think that we should revisit this decision and ask some more, some more questions about it, or is this a done deal and we're just, you know, we, we just need to move forward with the Space Force and that's it? I think we ought to move forward. And I'll, I'll say that for a couple of reasons. You know, when, when I was on, you know, out in the Pacific Air Forces, when, when the deliberation was going, ongoing, the one thing that it did do, uh, the debate about Space Force, where, from my perspective back then, wherever it was going to land, it actually increased the discussion on space, the importance of space, and why we need to defend in space. And, and so, you know, with the decision already being made and the, the Space Force stood up, um, there are some opportunities here to actually increase our visibility on space. Um, also, the other, I think the side benefit, and that's kind of why I wrote Accelerate Change or Lose, is because the Space Force is coming out of the Air Force, um, it's taken, it's given us an opportunity to take a hard look at ourselves as an Air Force. And there's some things that we can do differently um, and better. And there's some things we may be able to learn as we look at a, a separate service now that starts from, uh, starts from scratch. And uh, we have to work together because we're in the same department with the same secretary. And so there's some things we can learn as well from the Air Force. But I, I just... You know, we are all dependent on space and, you know, even to do what we're doing right now is dependent on space. You think about our smartphones, all that stuff is dependent on space. And if we're not, not thinking about it and just take it for granted, uh, we don't want to be in a position where uh, we lose our capability in space. And so uh, there's, there's, there are some positive things about the stand-up of the Space Force. And uh, I, I think we need to continue to move forward um, uh, with, with the effort. New York Times this morning had a, a powerful piece about the challenge to the United States in space, especially from China, uh, making the very point that you did about our dependence on vulnerability on space-based assets to pr project power. Let me ask you to speak a little bit about, about the challenge from China, I'll say the threat from China to our, our military capabilities, uh, both in space and in the domains that you oversee as, as Air Force Chief of Staff. Tell me what worries you about China, what worries you about our ability to project power against China, and what you want to do about it. Well, the thing I worry about, David, is, is you just think about what's happened over the course of the past uh, 30 years. You know, we're, we're right now in the midst of celebrating the 30th anniversary of Desert Shield, Desert Storm. And uh, we, as an Air Force, have been in conflict in the Middle East uh, for the past three years. And, and during that time frame, um, uh, the People's Republic of China has actually been able to watch how we operate and uh, has not been engaged in conflict. So they've been able to, in some cases, accelerate their own development of their capabilities. And uh, having spent the past two years in the Pacific and really um, in having spent quite a bit of time in the Middle East and then going to the Pacific, uh, what I was able to see is how quickly they were actually um, developing their capabilities. And, and that to me um, gives me pause to really think about it, but also as I spent time talking to our allies and partners in the region, what they were seeing over time and the influence that uh, uh, China was trying to will within the region. And so that becomes a concern because it upsets the kind of rules-based international order that has actually um, kept um, the world in a well security um, pretty stable over the course of the past 70 years. Um, you know, despite some uh, some you know some conflicts, but by and large, it's been the uh, the uh, kind of the format we've operated under uh, since World War II. 
and, and so from that aspect, uh, that, that concerns me, the fact that they are actually driving influence and actually increasing their capability, and which puts pressure on our allies and partners, puts pressure on us, but also puts pressure on our economy because our economies are fairly well intertwined. And so we, we've got to put in a position where not just with the Air Force, but with the other uh, services and their capabilities, but also throughout the whole of government and their interagency, how we pay attention to the objectives China has and uh, and fully understand where, where they're trying to head and the influence that they have within the region, but also the influence they're, you know, they're, they're starting to wield around the world. And it's uh, there's places where we can compete, but I think there's a lot of places we can cooperate as well. So in the, in the minute that we have left, let me just ask you for just a, a quick answer to a very complicated question. Of all the te technological changes that are coming, uh, I think of hypersonics, I think of uh, lasers, I think of, of sophisticated drones. What do you think is, is the biggest game changer for the Air Force that's coming along that you're going to really try to focus on? David, I would say it's, 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 a, it's the digital trinity and aspect of being able to do digital engineering, open mission system with uh, software, and agile software development. The ability to actually, it's not so much, you know, what we build, it's how we build it faster. And, and so when you were able to use a digital engineering concept, we did that with the T-7. Um, the next generation air dominance uh, demonstrator that flew uh, last year was also done using uh, digital technology, open mission systems, agile software, that capability, that gives you the opportunity to go faster. And that's why when I talk about accelerate, change, or lose, having that mindset allows us to do that across the force, not only for the Air Force, the Space Force is able to do some of this as well. And uh, you're able to use the digital aspect of, of uh, capability to you know, design uh, electronically in a digital form before you start even bending metal. And that way you can deliver a capability much faster. So I want to thank on behalf of all of our viewers, uh, General Charles Brown, for an unusual conversation. It's rare to have a chance to talk uh, in a way that's uh, uh, personal and direct with senior officers of the military. General Brown, we're, we're really grateful that you could join us today. Thank you. Thank you, David. It's my pleasure. Wish, wish we had a little more time, but uh, good, good seeing you and look forward to crossing paths with you again. We'll, we'll, we'll have you back soon. So I'll be back tomorrow for a conversation with Ray Dalio, who's one of the biggest uh, thinkers on economic issues around. Uh, and at 12 noon on Wednesday, my colleague Francis Steed Sellers will be talking with Melinda and Bill Gates in two rare back-to-back -back interviews. So make sure to join us for those. Thanks for joining us on Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.